Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Checkman. Books, movies, and just stories about spies and espionage are as old as civilization. The act of betrayal to serve one's personal interest and desire and to know about what others and other groups are doing are one of the core attributes, if not always the best, of human nature. The moral twilight that usually accompanies such stories are what captures our interest and allows us to imagine what we would do in similar circumstances. Often it's Hollywood that has mastered the art of telling such stories. Characters from Bond to George Smiley, from Jason Bourne to Ethan Hunt and Jack Ryan are embedded in our consciousness. But imagine a story where the real-life players in Hollywood, those making the movies and telling the stories, are actually the spies. This is the story that my guest Jonathan Gill tells us in his new book, Hollywood Double Agent. Jonathan Gill is a professor of American history and culture at the University of Amsterdam. He was formerly on the faculty of Columbia, CCNY, Fordham, and Manhattan School of Music. He's written for the New York Times, The Village Voice, and The Nation, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Gill here to talk about Double Agent, the true tale of Boris Moros, film producer turned Cold War spy. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, it is great to have you here. How did you originally come upon the story of Boris Moros? And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I mean, in Hollywood, his name was, uh, he was called Boris Moros. Uh, but actually, the, the name Moros means frost in Russian. And that was actually his code name. We can get into later why you would have your real name be your code name. But that's just one of the many ironies. I got into this book. I, you know, look, I'm a writer. So all I do is read and write. Uh, and I was reading a, a review of a uh, of a book about Julia Child years ago, uh, and uh, maybe almost 10 years ago now. Uh, and it mentioned that Julia Child during the Second World War had uh, had uh, was stationed in, uh, in 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 South Asia and was best friends there with a woman who was a member, member of Boris Moros's spy ring, a Hollywood producer, Hollywood producer and musician uh, who was also a double agent for the United States and the Soviet Union. And I thought, wow, there's a story. And that's where it took off from. Talk about Moros coming to Hollywood and how he embedded himself in Hollywood effectively and successfully. For sure. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it, one thing it's important to remember is that, you know, now we really see the entertainment industry as located on the West Coast. But Hollywood has Hollywood. You know, it was a desert, uh, uh, you know, up until the 19 up first World War period. And he arrived in Hollywood not so far, not so long after that. He made his name in the entertainment, the center of the entertainment world at the time, which was New York City. Uh, and if you've been to New York City, then uh, then you the, the word Paramount Theater, you know, means a lot. Paramount Theater was also owned by Paramount Pictures. So he started out working um, for the Paramount organization, and they moved him out of Hollywood. This was a time when you could move between theater uh, and motion pictures with a great deal more ease than you can do that now. And that's how he uh, eventually did that. And he wanted really to be a proper director, um, but he never quite made that happen. And he ended up being a producer that in between phase that he that he was in in Hollywood. Is he a producer? Is he a director? Uh, he really made that work for him in Hollywood as he made the same kind of thing work for him in the world of espionage. But he was originally a musician 
became a conductor and a mu- musical talent scout and then moved to Hollywood as the as a music director for films and then went independent, uh, um, uh, left Paramount and started making his own pictures. And these are the four four and a half pictures that he produced for himself. And how was he initially recruited? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story. I mean, he, he, he came to the United States uh, in 1922 and left his whole world behind him. Uh, he left all his family behind him. Uh, and one, and, and, and uh, during the 1920s, and 19, when, when he was in New York City, uh, actually first in Boston, then New York City, uh, he would periodically send packages of food, medicine, clothing back to his uh, family in, uh, in, in Russia. And the Soviet embassy was keeping a track of the kind of communications that were going on between the United States uh, and the Soviet Union. And they approached him one day and said, listen, we know that, you know, you're sending these packages back to your family. Would you like us to help you? Would you like us to make sure that they these packages arrive safely? <laughs> now, you know, he should have said, why, are, why did they want to help me? Instead, naively, he said, that's really nice of you. Please do help me. Well, when in that period, when you have the, uh, the Soviet diplomats undercover asking you if you want their help and you accept their help, they're going to want something else in return very soon. And uh, after a year of this, they said, well, how's your family? Are they going, is it going okay? Yes. Are they getting the packages? Yes. Are they safe? Yes. Do you want them to remain safe? Well, of course I do. Do you want them to remain, stay in their jobs, in their homes? Yes. Well, then there's something we'd like you to do for us. And he said, no, thank you. And they said, no, thank you is not an option. Uh, And so they basically forced him into a world of espionage for the Soviet Union. And what did they want him to do? Well, it's not really clear what they wanted him to do. Uh, And in fact, it never really became quite clear. He did so many different things for them. uh, And they range from really quite trivial to, you know, more... In the case of his the, the work he did in the world of nuclear espionage, earth shaking. Um, uh, they wanted him for, to 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 gather, for example, gossip on important public figures: who was gay, who was a gambler, who you know politicians, um, who was having an affair, uh, who had a drinking problem. And the Soviet Union could then use this to blackmail politicians, uh, to blackmail um, major figures uh, in the Roman Catholic Church in America, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so so that's so. So, so it remained it ranged from the somewhat trivial to uh, his main job, which was actually to set up bogus companies, talent uh, recruitment companies uh, that would be used to provide cover for Soviet spies. So he he set up a company on the West Coast and he hired or was supposed to hire a bunch of Soviet spies who would then have cover. They would then be able to come to America legally. They would have a legal income. They would have a different name and everything. And then they could travel all around America uh, uh, at, at liberty uh, and they would uh, and there would be no suspicion of why they were why they were here um, and what, what they were doing. So that was what he was, uh, that was one, largely what he did uh, in the 1930s um, and the 1940s. Um, later on, they wanted actual uh, information from him. So it ranged from, oh, they wanted, uh, yeah, this, this gets a little technical, but um, uh, when supersonic jets came into being, there were lots of problems with the tires uh, because when they landed, the tires had to be made of a special kind of rubber. And the when they landed, the, the rubber uh, couldn't handle the landing. 
and so they wanted to get him to, uh, to get the formula for the rubber. Uh, something very similar with the with the canopies, the that is the windows of these supersonic jets. They would bubble over at high altitudes and wouldn't be clear anymore. They wanted him to 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 infiltrate the the air force and to get the the, the formula for uh, a, 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 a canopy for a supersonic jet that wouldn't bubble over. Um, they wanted him to be in contact with other spies who would have information about America's nuclear program, uh, and he was involved in that as well. So he really did a huge range of things. Um, but it's important to remember that, well, I mean, that's on, that's from the Soviet side, right? So what did, you know, we haven't even talked about what he did for the American side, and we can do that later. Right. So he really did, he was really sort of a jack of all, of all trades. Um, and and one of the things he, that he was really successful at was playing his Soviet handlers. So this business of getting the formula or getting close to John Cardinal O'Connor or whoever he was spying on for blackmail purposes, he could play this out for years and years. And um, and 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 the, and the company, the bogus company that he set up, he actually used that as a slush fund for himself. So you know, give me two hundred thousand dollars, and I'll set up this company. And he would use that two hundred thousand dollars to fund films. What was it from his vantage point in Hollywood at Paramount? that really enabled him to even accomplish some of the things that the Soviets wanted him to do. It's so unbelievable. He would have he would have people come to his office who were he was involved with in, in various espionage tasks. And he would have uh, he would write down their names in, uh, in 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 his agendas. He would have documents right out on the open. He would have his the door would be open, so his secretary at Paramount, who wasn't aware of his espionage activities, could hear everything they said. And and the Soviets continually said to him, "You you really need to be more discreet." And Boris said. You know, the, the more open I am, the more innocent I seem. Why should I hide anything? It was a strange business because he was such uh, an expert liar. And at the same time, he was, was completely open about so much of this. Um, and I think another thing that um, that enabled him to, to, to move in the circles he moved in was Boris was, if you look back, you know, and, and, and this book involved, you know, a lot of reading of of Hollywood film, uh, music, radio trade journals from the 1930s and 40s, reading uh, gossip column, columns from the 1930s and 40s, sort of a sweet smell of success kind of uh, uh, atmosphere. And what you realize is he was, a, he was the, the, the Boris was the butt of everyone's jokes. Through his funny accent, uh, the strange clothing he wore, uh, his strange sense of humor, and he was a bit of a clown in Hollywood, but that got him, that made him a famous person it got him access and you know who would have thought that this person wasn't you know penetrated you know the the, the Kremlin um so really for, for Boris it was his his the, the, this external sense of how innocent he he was that allowed him to engage in the kinds of deceptions he engaged in he was also a fun guy and people loved to hang out with him he had lots of really cool stories were they true I don't know was he really the court musician for the czar? <sighs> Believe me, I tried to find out. It's really difficult to find out. You know, did he really? Uh, did you know? Did you know? Did he really move in those circles back in the Soviet Union? And, and who knows? I don't know. Um, uh, as his ex-wife said, Boris lied about everything, but he was good to me. 
So, I mean, I think that's that's what allowed him access. I think people fooled themselves. And so there was a kind of espionage aspect in his personal life also, this constant play with who are you, who am I, what do I want from you, what do I want from me, how do I become a member of your golf club, how do I get a, you know, a discount on that kind of car, you know, like all this business of, of the gathering of information, the playing of roles. It's, it, it was like a seamless existence for him and they really bled into each other the the politics the espionage and the hollywood it was all mixed up together for him i i can't imagine how he pulled it off one of the things that that you talk about is that that he wasn't alone that hollywood was filled with spies at the time talk about that yeah i mean it's it's, it's quite, quite interesting because uh germany well, Hitler was crazy about the movies and he would screen an American movie uh, almost every night with some of his um, uh, with some of his minions. Uh, and he actually got a lot of his ideas about uh, about warfare and about uh, about, about espionage also from Hollywood movies. Germany at the time was um, America's primary overseas film. Uh, market for export, uh, and the and the and the uh, the Hollywood producers were very afraid of of alienating uh, Hitler because that would uh, damage the German market. So there was actually a book about this a couple of years ago that talked about what though an extraordinary influence um, uh, uh, some of Hitler's uh, employees had living in Hollywood uh, uh, and actually screening Hollywood movies and and approving them before release so they didn't contain anything bad about Hitler or about Germany. And remember, of course, this is not just in, during the war years. I mean, when Hitler was an enemy, of course, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't operate in the same way. This we're talking about the 1930s. And one of the terrible ironies is, of course, that, that, uh, that, 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 Jew, uh, that uh, Jewish people were uh, were overrepresented uh, in terms of population in Hollywood as producers, directors, musicians, actors, and um, and so there was a there was a there was a sense that if Hollywood movies came out too strongly against uh, Germany and against Hitler, there would be some kind of backlash. They would be considered a sort of a, a Jewish phenomenon, and so the so the Jews of Hollywood were highly assimilated and and and, and very concerned with being proper Americans. Uh, but you're but you're right. I mean that that uh, that that that, that uh, look. I mean, one of the fascinating takeaways from the book is that it is our openness in American society that makes us vulnerable. That that is, uh, the the Soviets asked Boris, listen. Um, we need to know things about ports, about harbors, about about about, uh, uh, about landing strips, about airports. And Boris would go into a public library and be able to get the blueprints of airports and he would bring them to his Soviet handlers and they thought this is a guy who really has connections. Boris walked into the front door of the FBI in the in the uh, late 1940s and where they had a whole wall of brochures like how to apply to become an FBI spy. Here's what we're looking for, right? Anyone could walk in and get an application and he brought them to the Soviets and they thought oh, he's totally penetrated the FBI. He has documents that nobody <laughs> else can get. Unbelievable! Yeah, I mean, it's this bizarre how how he was able to um, how he was able to, to play the sides against one another. But that was that. that it's fascinating. It was is our openness that made us vulnerable. I mean, you know, should we not be such an open society? I mean, remember, and it was of course the Soviets, the closed nature of the Soviet Union that made it so difficult for us. I mean, and that's like 
there, there are lots of interesting resonances to what's happening today. Obviously, who could have predicted the, the, the incredibly unpredictable Putin and the way he operates things, which is so familiar to anyone who knows Soviet history. Um, um, but but what's even the resonance for me writing this book was really about 9-11. 9-11 took us by surprise. How could it have taken us by surprise when we actually had all these people under surveillance? One of the, not all of them, one of the things that, that allowed us to be taken by surprise was we hadn't developed, the, the CIA hadn't developed a team of people who knew how to talk, speak and read Arabic. Like how basic could you you would you need to be in order to be prepared for that kind of situation um and so the, the, the soviet union was close to us yes but of course there were very few efforts being made to penetrate the soviet union um the soviets they actually uh, in 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 the uh, in the american embassy in in moscow uh, on the wall there was a massive great seal of the united states the soviets had a microphone planted in the image of the great seal they had totally – the Soviets knew about the atomic bomb before the president, the United States president did. Uh, and so there was this enormous imbalance, and the Soviets knew how to play that. You know, So one of the so, – I'm not saying the lesson is we should need to shut down our society um, uh, and that the openness is wrong because the openness is our great strength also. But, I mean, we need to remember that it's also a weakness. Coming back to Boris, were, were any of the movies that he made any good? I mean, you have to remember, I mean, it's a little bit like today that if you watch all the movies that come out, they're not all good movies, right? So, you know, like they're not sure. all memorable movies, you know, and it's funny because as a, I'm actually in my, in my day job as a professor of literature. And one of the fun things to do is to go back to the 1920s or 30s uh, and look at what the bestsellers of the day were. And of course, you know, you know, none of the books, none of the, uh, of the authors are familiar to us. So too, during that time, most of what Hollywood was producing were B movies or C movies. Boris made B movies with a-list actors, um, and he ended up you know, Fred Astaire and Paul Robeson, and they all worked with him exactly once when they realized what was really going on. Uh, so, 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 Boris, some of the movies are quite memorable and quite interesting. The ways they were made were also quite interesting. Um, but uh, uh, and you know, and he had his share of Academy Award nominations as well. People don't really recall those movies very much nowadays. If they do, it's for other reasons, like you know that Paul Robeson played in this film a really interesting role, or uh, or or, um, or or who the writers were, you know, um, who were interested were blacklisted or that kind of thing. Um, so I mean, they're interesting for me, but you know, I, I sometimes say as a as a, as a scholar of culture that interest, you know, you're not going to get a scholar to say it's good or bad. They're going to say it's interesting, and I always say interesting is the friend zone of the intellect uh, and so these movies are really quite interesting are they good movies i like to watch them but they're b movies they're fascinating and but i mean the, 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 the laurel and hardy made a lot of movies a couple of them are really quite memorable but you know the other 30 of them it's for specialists talk a little bit about his decision to flip in 1947 what happened? Yeah, so what happened was, <clears throat> well, first of all, who knows? <laughs> we're never, we're just never going to know. Uh, and that was part of the challenge of writing the book. Like, my, how can I write this story in a way that will be true to what actually happened? Because Boris himself 
told the story in many different ways. And in fact, after the book came out, I got an email from a guy uh, who was the son of the FBI agent who turned or flipped Boris. <laughs> and I, th I thought, oh my gosh, do I really want to return this email? Because what am I, am I going to learn that everything in the book is just wrong? So it was a real challenge to be able to write the book in a way that would work as a story, a story that was that was true to life. Uh, so uh, the, the, the FBI, um, uh, there was something called the Berkeley Radiation Laboratory. Back then in the 1940s, uh, the uh, the Manhattan Project was not located only in Manhattan. It was dispersed throughout the country. And at the University of California, Berkeley, there was a radiation laboratory. And, a, and, and there, there was a Soviet spy who was stationed there, who was inside, had penetrated this, uh, this research arm of the Manhattan Project. Uh, and Boris had contacts with him. And Boris was, was, uh, was uh, there was surveillance of Boris visiting this guy. So the FBI found out uh, that Boris was in contact um, with, uh, the, with the Soviet Union. Um, that, that the, what was not yet called the KGB. Um, uh, and they um, eventually started following him and Boris knew he was being followed. And eventually they came to him. In the book, he says, oh, I'm a good American patriot. You know, I went to the FBI and I, that's what the book says. But he didn't even write the book, so his own autobiography. Uh, uh, so as best as I can tell, the FBI approached him and said, listen, we know what you're doing. Uh, and you, know, you can either go to the electric chair or you can come work for us. And Boris was in a bit of a situation that he'd been in before. You know, you don't say no, thank you to that kind of uh, to that kind of offer. And so he eventually uh, did begin uh, working as a double agent. Um, and um, um, this, he had a complicated life before because he was already living a double life. And this was sort of a triple life that he was now living and he made it work for him. And one of the reasons they, you, you ask how he became you know, a double agent, how he stopped being a double agent is also really interesting because it went on for a long time, um, uh, really until the late 1950s. And by that time, he wasn't really producing that much uh, valuable intelligence for either side. And you wonder why did it go on for so long? Boris wanted it to go on for so long because he was making espionage pay. He had a lot of debts by that time and both the FBI and the KGB were paying him to do this. He had made espionage pay. And it's another one of the ironies in the book that actually the, 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 the real capitalists, people who really knew the value of money, uh, were the Soviets were not the Americans. Uh, and so Boris was able to, to fund all kinds of television projects and film projects and book projects and travel all around the world and um, uh, through Soviet and uh, through the KGB and FBI money. So that's why it went on so long. Uh, and I, I learned that at the very end of writing the book in an interview with his, uh, with his, with his second wife um, who just died. She died actually the day the book uh, was published. She was, um, she wasn't, that old, uh, she had a relationship with Boris in the 50s when she was very young. Um, and so uh, she was a great source of insight uh, into, uh, into Boris as a character. But I'm not really sure what it was she, if she was telling me the truth, because she would always say, I never knew anything about what Boris did. I didn't ask. I didn't know. And I used to, she said, she told me I had his, every time I would go visit her, her New York city apartment, she would say, Oh, it's too bad. You came today because yesterday I just threw away all of his diaries. I'm like, Marion, come on, you know, I want to see those, but she would say it every time. Um, so this was really, you know, like a, 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 a silver screen world where everything is illusion, everything is a lie, or the way I like to think about it, everything's a story.
and everyone's an audience. You know, this is a kind of all the world's a stage sort of situation. And Boris, you know, grew up as a performer, saw his own history and, you know, uh, as, a, as a story to be shaped constantly. And like, when was he born? We'll never know. Because he said he has seven different he offers seven different dates and as many different places where he was born. And uh, so it, the, the, the past is always in motion when you're talking about Boris Morris. And so I imagine, I mean, of course he fit in perfectly with Hollywood where, by the way, you know, for example, Samuel Goldwyn of MGM was, you know, his name was Shmuel Goldfish. I mean, everyone had a different name in Hollywood. Everyone came there with a different past to make a new future. Boris fit right in. What about his family back in Russia, the, the, the family that he was concerned about initially when he agreed to participate with the Soviets? Yeah, so the, 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 I mean, how do you know what you know about right. it? You know, can you listen to Boris and what he was saying? Or, I mean, we, the, the best source uh, for, for learning about what was happening to his family all this time and what eventually happened to all of them uh, uh, would be uh, declassified documents from, again, what was not, it was called the NKVD. The, the KGB had many, went through many different iterations. Uh, but, but over the years, in different forms, there were lots of documents uh, that were declassified that would have been cables that went back between Moscow and New York City and between Moscow and Hollywood. A lot of it's available, you know, freely available now on, on the CIA website. Uh, yes, CIA.gov has something called The Vault, and it's great reading uh, for about celebrities and stuff. Um, but also uh, at the Woodrow Wilson Center at Princeton University. Uh, I'm not sure that's called that anymore, by the way. Uh, they um, So, so, so you, you have cables going back and forth that talk about, like, who is this Boris Morris? You need to find out who his family is. What are they do. And it turns out that his family, he had uh, brothers, uh, were big troublemakers, um, at least in terms of the Soviet apparatus. And uh, they weren't really willing, willing to toe the party line in all kinds of ways. And the brothers, all of them, one by one, were murdered or sent off to the Gulag, where they starved to death, or they were sent to prison. Uh, and Boris actually didn't know this on, in, the, in most of the cases until later. In the book, he says, I became a double agent uh, to, to, to defeat the Soviet Union because of what they did to my family. I don't know. It's funny because ugh, Boris presents himself as a real family man, but he had very difficult relations with his father, who he brought to uh, to the United States during the war, uh, and, but it was not close to at all. Uh, and his family... Uh, and he, and he came from the Soviet Union via um, Istanbul. Uh, uh, he was a married man who had two stepchildren. And he um, uh, did not have good relations with any, with, with any of them. So in his daily life, he presented himself as a real family man. I, I, I don't know. His last wife really did love him. Uh, he did have one son who ended up become, uh, uh, working in the entertainment world. That's a very sad story, uh, who committed suicide in the 1960s. And I, I was in touch with various members of the family over the years, and something very espionage could happen. Like, you know, the great-grandchildren or grand-nephews or whatever it would be. And I would reach out to them, find them one way or another, and I would get an initial email that said, oh, interesting. And I said, you know what, I'll share everything I have with you about your very interesting, you know, grandfather or great grandfather. Uh, and because I thought surely they want to know, I'll show them everything I have. Uh, and then after one or two emails, there would just be radio silence. 
And I don't, I don't know what that was about. Maybe they thought I was going to present him in a shameful way. Maybe they were already ashamed of him. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, but I did track down a lot, lo- lot of his family members, and it just did, led nowhere after that first enthusiastic email. At the end of the day, what, what did you come away with in terms of how you felt about Boris? Was, was he a good guy or was he just uh, f- obsessed with, with fame and money for himself? Oh, you know, after the book was published, uh, there's a, I don't remember which university in Texas, somewhere in Houston, maybe, uh, released, because I have a Google alerts on Boris Morris, so I get, every time he appears somewhere on the internet, I learn about it, and I got a Google alert that was the first time I ever actually heard his voice, uh, and the first time I ever heard his image, and I was totally shocked to hear it uh there there are fbi interviews with him but they're not they're not available uh they're in 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 the library of congress uh so the first time i ever heard his voice i was totally shocked because he had an extraordinarily heavy russian accent and you're thinking huh 40 years later he came to the united states as a young man granted okay fine he had a funny accent um and he made the most of it to make funny jokes and stuff like that but 40 years later to have such a heavy accent and i was really shocked by that but then i got thinking hmm this is a performer mm. right so maybe he was performing that accent too i mean to me boris is a figure of yeah like shakespeare says like infinite jest uh um, really like a Falstaff character, someone who, uh, who who provides you with lots of stories and lots of fun and lots of love, but there's something else there as well. They used to say in Hollywood that Boris is the only man in Hollywood who can smile and cry at the same time. So I don't come away with one idea about him. I come away with, you know, sort of like the Heisenberg principle. If you try to locate it, it moves. And you're, the process of locating it moves it. They're talking about, you know, uh, fundamental particles. Um, and that's the way it really is with Boris. And I realized that I was never going to, have a have a single view of him there were just too many borises i couldn't come away with and i think also you know like uh, one of the other interesting takeaways was that it was you know I, I learned about the history of espionage the deep history of espionage espionage until yeah until even after the second world war it was invented by gentlemen and 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 and, and, and members of the fbi wouldn't lie because it was considered ungentlemanly. Uh, and so th- even the idea of telling untruths, which we think is so fundamental to espionage, even that became s- s- something that, that that put Boris in motion for me. So like I say, I try to see it as a him as a performer um, who was is, is still giving us what we want. And is it a lie? Yeah, now we're into, you know, questions of the theater. We go to the theater in order to have a collective hallucination and to believe for a little while. I don't think you're ever, you, you, I don't think you could really pin him down. I think tonight he's, you know, my hero. Tomorrow he's my villain and he'll be something else the next day. He was very, very much beloved by very many people. And what can I say? I mean, I mean, I hope I hope I have that by the time my time is over. Um, but I can't I, I can't say I can't pin him down. And that's part of the fun. Jonathan Gill. The book is Hollywood Double Agent, the true tale of Boris Moros, film producer turned Cold War spy. Jonathan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you.